welcome to the Judgment Call podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet, risk takers, travelers, adventurers, investors, entrepreneurs, or simply mind partners. To find all the episodes of this show, please go to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or go to judgmentcallpodcast.com. For more resources, including how to become a guest, how to advertise, and to see all the lectures, podcasts, and books I would like to would like you to listen to or read, please also go to our website at judgmentcallpodcast.com. Like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or like us and subscribe to us on YouTube. That will make it easier for other users like you to find us later on. This episode of the Judgment Call podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is also my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the best travel deals for you as they happen. We do that in economy, premium economy, business and first class, and we screen 450,000 new airfare deals every day just for you and present the best based on your preferences. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% on the airfare deals. In case you didn't know, Americans and Europeans can already travel to more than 80 different countries again, South America, in Africa, and in Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium for free, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP. If that's too much for you to type, just type in mtp4u.com, mtp for you.com to start your 30 day free trial. I'm here today with Professor Paul Friedman, and uh, Paul has been teaching at Vanderbilt University and at Yale uh, since 1997. And uh, Paul specializes in medieval history, medieval social history, and uh, comparative studies of peasantry, actually, luxury products, and the history of cuisine. And uh, Paul is a prolific author. Besides being a professor, he's uh, published a number of books, including The Images of the Medieval Peasant, Food, the History of Taste, and uh, American Cuisine, and how it get, got that way. They're all available on Amazon. Welcome to the Judgment Call podcast, Paul. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate that. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Torsten. I found you through through YouTube. You um, have one of your lectures, um, the one about the Middle Ages, the introduction to the Middle Ages. That's how I found you initially. And um, what what led you or what came out of Yale to put your lectures on YouTube? And uh, well, how does it feel to be a YouTube star? You must get a lot of a lot of comments. Uh, well, uh, Yale in 2011 and 2012 uh, was experimenting with open access courses. I think they wanted to see what kind of audience there was for <clears throat> liberal arts courses. And they asked me um, to do a course on the early Middle Ages. And so that's the one that you saw it's open access, meaning that it's for free. Uh, I said at the time, oh, wouldn't you uh, prefer to have my course on the history of food that is, uh, you know, perhaps has a bigger audience or maybe the uh, central Middle Ages? And they said, no, basically this was, this was when they wanted to do it. And so, yes, to my surprise, a lot of people have seen it. Uh, I get a lot of messages 
from people, email messages, uh, uh, sometimes saying um, they enjoyed it so much that they don't know what they're going, how they're going to do their exercises. Uh, they very often, you know, are doing something else while listening to or watching uh, these uh, these lectures. So yes, it's it's been surprising uh, and gratifying, and now it's almost uh, uh, ten, ten years since I actually gave those uh, those classes. But um, yeah, I still I still hear from people quite a lot. Yeah, I can imagine. I I found the lecture series fascinating. It 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 opened up um, a piece of history that I and I assume most people are like that. I knew pretty much nothing about. I knew about the Romans and I knew about a little bit about the Greeks and obviously I learned a lot about the Renaissance. I grew up in Europe, so the Renaissance was a big deal. We we we, we studied that for a long time, and that's for me a long time ago um, as well. Um, when, when the first thing that everybody thinks of of the Middle Ages is you are in these, the Dark Ages. Um, nothing really happened. Um, we, were, we were steeped in, in literally darkness. Um, what do you say to that? That, that seems to be the first uh, gut reaction for most people. Yeah, I mean, medieval historians have been trying to convince people that that's not true for about 100 years uh, with no success. So in a way, we've sort of embraced the notion. You know, if you want to call it the Dark Ages, as long as it's interesting, what we really react against is the notion that nothing happened. Um, the Middle Ages is the origin of so many things that uh, the Roman Empire did not have, from debt financing to uh, universities, to Gothic architecture, um, not necessarily things that are great. Um, uh, Anti-Jewish persecution, um, uh, the Crusades, uh, um, the beginnings of uh, European colonization. But I don't think its importance is in any doubt. I also think that the Dark Ages implies and was really a label of the Renaissance to imply that the art of the Middle Ages, the style of the Middle Ages, uh, was primitive and unpleasant. And, you know, if you consider how much, just to take Gothic architecture alone, has influenced churches, universities, and even secular buildings, the Houses of Parliament in London, for example, uh, there's no doubt that the Middle Ages is influential. Uh, I, I am happy with people finding the Middle Ages somewhat horrifying, uh, because personally I find all of history somewhat horrifying, and modernity is no, um, uh, you know, easy, smooth ride either. Things like Game of Thrones have popularized the Middle Ages or the so-called Dark Ages, and uh, and I'm happy with that. Yeah, but I I I. I uh... I could feel this through your lesson. Um, um, the way you 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 explain most of these things is that um, it from the summary kind of in my mind, if I have to put it in one sentence, is literally the digestion of Christianity in Europe through through the centuries and um, the 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 importance of the Holy Roman Empire, um, the holiness um, within that. And that it wasn't um, a lovely place to be. Um, there was a lot of fighting going on, and there wasn't a lot of, um, how to say that, civil society. 
And EU just mentioned that that earlier. There's still a lot of debate going on what actually happened in the Middle Ages because the sources change or the interpretation change. Um, what is for you the most, um, let's say, from the last 10 years, because it's been about 10 years since you recorded those uh, lectures that I saw, uh, what are the most surprising findings? Well, the most surprising findings are... Uh, related to the problem that you mentioned first, and that is the impact of Christianity and the transition between the Roman Empire, which, while not the same as modern states, kind of looks like a modern state. It, you know, it has a bureaucracy, it has a dense population, it's an urban society that's um, ruled by a uh, um, fairly substantial literate class. Um, it has a lot of trade, a lot of public works. Whereas, um, you know, the 7th or 8th centuries AD is rural, much less population, um, very few literate people except uh, uh, the clergy, uh, and a very decentralized, um, you know, the governments such as they are, are either weak or um, indistinguishable from kind of plundering operations. The... um, emphasis in the last really even more than 10 years has been that this is not an abrupt, you know, fall, collapse of civilization replaced by barbarism. Um, It's a transformation, Christianization, ruralization. Um, There are winners and losers. If you were a peasant, and after all, 90% of the population at any time before the Industrial Revolution would have been peasants. Uh, it was not, you weren't worse off in the, t- in the 8th century than you would have been in the 4th century. In fact, you might be better off because the taxation structure, uh, uh, infrastructure wasn't there, the bureaucratic administrative system that was required. So um, there's, in a way, more, uh, more violence, but less state violence more um, disorder, but also more self-sufficiency, fewer rules, fewer repressions on the ability of ordinary people to do things like hunting or um, uh, 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 keeping their own produce or uh, making arrangements among their own uh, communities. So the, the shift has been to... Uh, regard more favorably the period that comes after the Roman Empire and a little less favorably the Roman Empire merely because it created a lot of big public works and uh, had a complicated legal system. Yeah, so when when, when we take these two extremes, would you say that the Middle Ages actually, for most people involved, was a bit more democratic than, say, the Roman Empire, which was this huge global, semi-global infrastructure of top-down um, administration. Um, so I, the, the, it actually went into people's favor, what happened in the Middle Ages? Um, there's a case to be made. Uh, democratic, no, because the theory, I mean, not in, in theory, um, but uh, if we interpret democratic in the sense of the kind of space that people had, I mean, I personally, um, uh, I'm, I'm, not adv- I'm not wishing that I was, uh, uh, you know, a peasant in the 8th century or in the 4th century AD. I'm, I'm quite happy if I have a lottery of uh, eras to be born in and conditions to be born in. I'm happy with 
the ticket that I drew. <clears throat> but um, the the thing the historian wants to avoid is judging periods on the basis of the most articulate and privileged classes alone, particularly if you can figure out how to get at the lived reality of ordinary people. And so what's allowed us to get closer to how ordinary people lived in the Middle Ages has been particularly advances in archaeology or advances yeah. in technologies like DNA analysis or stable isotope analysis that, you know, we can figure out what people ate, um, what their migration patterns were, uh, what their health was like. Uh, and the picture that emerges is not quite so grim as what the monastic chroniclers would have us believe, for example. Yeah, we, there was there was one um, note that I found, and that was outside of your lecture, so that might be completely bogus. Uh, there is this ongoing theory around, um, maybe it's just an internet myth, uh, that people were basically drinking alcohol the whole day. There's this story about up to two gallons. Uh, apparently, it was found in a, in a in a monastery. Um, so the rationing was was water wasn't wasn't being consumed because it was. Um, potentially polluted, and bacteria was in there. So the, the, the myth is you got up to two gallons of water, if you're enough water, of wine and beer, if you're relatively uh, well off. Um, are these things true, or is it just a myth? It's partially true. So uh, it depends on where in Europe, if they're drinking wine, ale, nobody's drinking beer with hops. You know, nobody's drinking lager beer, which is a modern yes. invention. Uh, ale which uh, people brew themselves, uh, is, uh, has a very low alcohol level. So if people are drinking, uh, you know, a quart or two of ale a day, uh, they're not inebriated particularly. So yeah, they're drinking ale for breakfast in Britain, for example. But it's, um, the, the other thing that's not quite right is this notion that nobody drinks water because it was polluted. So yeah, if you're living close to a tannery um, you're not going to drink stream water. But well water is all over the place. They, they dig wells. They, well water is fine. Um, they don't have the kinds of problems that we do with the leaching of, um, you know, massive chemical agricultural pollutants uh, into the aquifer. So uh, monasteries, um, uh, the monks drink wine, but they also drink a lot of water. People who are undergoing penance drink water only. Uh, oh, there's plenty of water around. Uh, but uh, it is true that they drink much more wine and much more uh, ale than we do. But it is not true that they were, you know, slightly drunk all the time. That sounded maybe too good to be true. Uh, there, there, was, there was this movie just a little while ago, and I, it, it was a Danish movie. <clears throat> and uh, it, it basically had this theory, again, probably not very scientific, but the theory was that our DNA had adopted to um, an alcohol level of 0 0.5, 0 0.5 um, per mil. And uh, that's something that we that came through the Middle Ages. So people were slightly drunk. Obviously, you get used to the amount of alcohol, right? It doesn't have a big effect if you're always a little drunk. But we, we at our natural level, without any alcohol, we are kind of we are not at our best. Like in, in especially in creative um, places and in in areas with with um, 
where we need a little more of a social um, um, outgoingness, we should be a little drunk and then we would be at our best. And I think a lot of us feel that way, right? We all feel, obviously it's a, it's, it's addictive, but we all feel like, okay, but a slightly higher alcohol level might be actually good for us until we get addicted and then it gets really bad, right? Well, uh, uh, or until, I mean, there's a lot of brawling in the Middle Ages. So yeah, there, you know, drinking uh, is hard to... Um, adjust to a thermostat. In other words, uh, people tend to go beyond the uh, friendly level uh, and advance to something that's rowdy or belligerent. Uh, certainly men do. But um, the thing that gets me about the Middle Ages and that makes me really glad that I live, um, say, post-1700 is the absence of caffeine. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, it's one thing to have a, a, a mild uh, a buzz from wine or ale, but there, there is no, there's no chocolate, there's no coffee, there's no tea, um, and there's no tobacco either for those who uh, regard that as a necessity. So, um, you know, you're, you're kind of faced with uh, life uh, as uh, w- without kind of the intermediary drugs, many of them, to uh, to make it bearable. Let's not even go into the pain reliever issue. Yeah, I can't believe how people even got through today. Um, I, I know that coffee is much older in like um, regions like Ethiopia, right? But it didn't come into Europe until the 12th century, 13th? No, um, no, no, later even. Uh, really, the uh, the it's first known in the 16th century, the 17th century is the first period when you have coffee houses, you know, when, when people go uh, uh, to, in big cities to, to coffee houses. Same with tea. Um, okay. Chocolate yeah. comes in a little earlier. Chocolate actually is a new world product. And uh, at least in Spain, uh, there's a fashion for drinking chocolate by the end of the 16th century. Well, I, I know you, you probably have been asked this question many times, but when we just touched about a couple of those effects, what do you feel are the most surprising things people don't know about uh, the Middle Ages? Um, obviously, it is the, the, the things you just mentioned, like certain things were just not invented yet, but what is like a pop, very popular misconception you get all the time? Oh, there are so many. Uh, one is that they had bad table manners. A lot of uh, movies have... Uh, uh, encourage people to believe that they just, you know, they eat with their hands and that they kind of have this uh, raucous kind of tearing wild boars apart. Uh, in fact, they have all sorts of rules about dining. They're very ceremonial kind of high-end dining. And, um, you know, peasant dining would be no more uncouth than uh, ordinary people's way of uh, eating now. So things like table manners, um, the notion that they uh, were always uh, incredibly unclean, um, I would say to the degree that they were unclean, it was because it was either cold or they didn't have a lot of access to hot water. They liked being clean, uh, as, as most people most of the time do. Um, misconceptions that I get all the time in the work that I've done on food, so that spices were popular with mediev- in medieval cuisine because um, it covered up the taste of spoiled meat. Uh, this can't be true for a number of reasons, including the fact that the meat was much cheaper than the spices. So, you know, uh, what's the to, to put a lot of cloves or pepper on meat that is uh, dubious would be like, you know, putting white truffles 
which come in at over $1,000 a pound, uh, slicing them on a fast food cheeseburger. Uh, it's just, you know, the cheeseburger is one one hundredth of the value of the sliced truffles. So um, uh, that Marco Polo brought pasta back from China. Uh, this is completely untrue. I mean, so, uh, I, I mean, I could go on for our, our entire period. There are a lot of misconceptions, uh, most of them harmless, yeah, well, I'm very curious. You cover two topics that I don't think are even related. One is food, like the history of food, obviously, but also um, how food, um, how different trends and traditions of food um, and their preparation have developed. And then you cover history um, in, a, in an unusual time frame, I think, for at least most people, maybe not for historians. Maybe that's a very popular one. I actually don't have enough insight. Uh, what inspired you to go there? How, how did that happen? And how, how do you choose these topics we, we talked about? And I introduced um, some of your books. They seem to be, to the outside observer, like kind of unrelated topics. Um, yes, uh, uh, people, I have met people who said, upon first meeting me, oh, I thought there were two people named Paul Friedman, one a medieval historian and another uh, interested in the history of food and cuisine. Uh, I, I mean, the kind of simple answer is academics are always accused of being over-specialized. So, you know, I'm trying to um, not um, mow the same field all the time or uh, to, to find some things that are new. There is an interrelation uh, that has to do with, um, well, first of all, uh, I became interested in the Middle Ages really in high school. And it's, its difference from today and yet its sort of peculiar similarities were what attracted me. I was also fascinated by how people could fight in the name of religion. And although I've never done any research on that, I've never published anything on that, um, uh, the conjoining of violence and piety uh, was always kind of like, what is going on? How do people reconcile these two things? Um, in uh, a lot of the work that I did was oriented around class structure and how people conceive of class, uh, how the wealthy regard the lower classes. Do they regard them as necessary? Do they regard them as not fully human? Do they regard them as what we would say genetically or by birth uh, or by nature inferior? And um, food is important as a symbol of that. So in the Middle Ages, peasants were made fun of because they ate low foods as they were conceived of, things like porridges or gruel or garlic and other root vegetables, whereas uh, the upper classes boasted of their good taste in eating food with lots of spices, uh, game, uh, meat generally, uh, fish, uh, fresh fish, particularly from the ocean. Uh, so um, I wrote this book on spices in the Middle Ages that was published in 2008. And it was about not the trade in spices, but the demand for spices. And that really led me to consider if this is what prestige food is in the Middle Ages, what is prestige food in, in, in my own society, in contemporary United States? And, and how did it get that way? Um, why is it that Americans, if you look at menus and people's cookbooks and opinions, 
why is it that in the 19th century, organ meat or viscera, you know, things like pig's feet or uh, brains or sweetbreads were highly prized on menus everywhere. And that now, you know, uh, uh, Americans basically, uh, unless they are recent arrivals from another country, generally despise or, you know, are afraid of organ meat. Yeah, you're probably familiar with René Girard and his theory of the mimetic desire, right? So we, we, we want what other people want, and then it, it, it leads to this culmination of, uh, of the scapegoat. We find that scapegoat, blame everything on him, and then the scapegoat becomes the martyr. Uh, <clears throat> it's a very Christian idea, but he wrote books about everything, so he applies it, <clears throat> excuse me, he applies it to pretty much everything out there. I feel this is also going on, and you, you probably tell me that's maybe the answer or maybe not, um, of, of food. So it, there is a lot of um, copying from, from upper and, and, well, you want to be seen as an upper class, right? You want to be seen as someone cool. So there's a lot of copying going on. One thing that I noticed, that might not be true, but there is this tale with the, with the, um, uh, the, early, uh, the early settlers around New York City. And they actually ate a lot of lobster because it was so abundant and it was seen as very uh, lower class food. And now it's complete opposite, right? Lobster is kind of one of the best things you can get if you go to a, a good French restaurant um, or a high dining, uh, high end dining, it will be a lobster meal. Uh, what's your answer how these things develop and would you predict the future that it's changing quite a bit again? Or do you think we, we're going to continue on this trajectory? Oh, I think... Um uh, the lobster story is indicative of something that has to do with prestige, and that is scarcity. If something is really, I mean, this isn't always true. So like oysters in the 19th century were abundant, and both upper and lower classes loved oysters. And this was just an American thing. They ate oysters all the time. But generally speaking, uh, something that is a little bit rare or a little hard to get uh, is often more highly prized. And so one reason why lobster increased in prestige might simply be that it becomes um, not as common, you know, becomes over uh, depleted. And uh, things can become so depleted that they're forgotten. So, for example, in the 19th century, one of the most prestigious foods in the United States was terrapin. These are small turtles uh, that come from shorelines and estuaries like the Chesapeake Bay region was supposed to produce the best terrapin. And by 1900 or so, they're, they're rare. They're, they're not rare, but they're, they're certainly not common. And, uh, you know, they're now illegal to catch in most uh, states. Uh, and, uh, and so not only uh, it, it can people not get it usually, but it's uh, it's forgotten. People don't even realize that the mascot of the University of Maryland, uh, the Terrapins, are named for what was well known as an edible product. Uh, they just assume somehow that's just their name. So, um, yeah, there, the changes that are happening now are also due to the accelerating depletion as a result of our ecological crisis. So, um, you know, overfishing means that a lot of fish species are likely not to be available in um, uh, the next 10, 20 years, if not sooner. 
um, the there is a shift away from meat eating or what's called you know vegetable forward. I'm not sure how far that's going to get, but already uh, uh, that has um, you know, the number of people who are either vegetarian or vegan or um, you know using meat more as a flavor than as a kind of a big piece of uh, uh, dinner. Um, you know, those are some some obvious uh, trends, at least, that are going on now and likely to continue in the future. Yeah, I'm going back to, to the history in the Middle Ages. Do you feel that the whole idea of eating healthy, which is uh, at least... The, the, when, we go, when we look at it from an intellectual level, from a conscious level, seems to play a huge role now. Um, not when we, when we get fast food, but when, when we have uh, plenty of options available. Was that a consideration people had in the Middle Ages or was certainly just, you just wanted good food, like fast food, so to speak, if they could get it, their hands on it? I think it's very similar to now. Many people fussed about the health uh, uh, benefits or dangers of food. So there's a whole theory of um, what are called humors. And these are the four major bodily fluids as conceived of by Greek, Roman, and medieval doctors. Uh, bile, black bile, blood, and phlegm. And everybody has a slight imbalance. So somebody who has uh, um, more blood tends to be a vigorous, uh, you know, red-faced, what in English is called sanguine personality. Sanguinous is blood in Latin. Or, um, but somebody who has more black bile, uh, uh, the Greek uh, for black is melon and bile, chyle, or coal, uh, melancholy. Uh, so someone with too much black bile has a melancholy person. So they explain not only disease by this imbalance, but personal, you know, emotional or what we'd call psychological type. And a disease, according to this theory, is caused by an imbalance of the humors. And the way to avoid such imbalance is to eat foods that counteract your tendencies. So, you know, a melancholic personality will have a different diet than a, a, a person who is phlegmatic and so forth. It becomes then as complicated as many diets are now, you know, with carbohydrates or uh, calories or uh, antioxidants. Uh, I, I am willing to say that, you know, the theories that we have today have more of a scientific basis, but notice how often they change, you know. Are eggs good for you or not? Uh, is flaxseed a miracle cure or irrelevant? Um, you get the same kinds of faddishness, medical intervention, quasi-medical knowledge, money-making dietetic advice in the Middle Ages that you do now. That's fascinating. I never, I never thought there, there was time for that. And, you, you know, when, when I think back and there's a lot of health advice, I always feel there's this, this theory of going back to the caveman. You know, that, that must be good because our DNA is made for it. That, but that's maybe a very quick jump in through a bunch of couple of different conclusions. And... Um, We don't know how much the DNA, the RNA actually changed and how much we inherited. Um, and, and the other hand is that I always feel when I go to Mediterranean countries, and that's pre-Middle Ages, but that's the Roman Empire, I always feel their diet seems, it, it makes me feel very healthy. The olive oil, the wine, the, the, there is carbs, but it's not a huge amount of it. Do, do you think that's something in the Middle Ages people already thought about? Or they were like, well, we, we have our own relatively small-minded theories. 
Well, I think they have the same dynamic between what is healthful and what they want to have. So, for example, one of the most prestigious and expensive items in the Middle Ages was um, lamprey. Uh, lamprey is a little bit like an eel. It's long. It's really mean. It's got teeth in its head. It lives by sucking out the insides of fish. Um, it is uh, um, a little hard to catch. It's seasonal. Um, uh, it's hard to prepare. Uh, I've had it once. It still is a specialty in the region of Bordeaux in southwestern France. It's absolutely delicious, I have to say. And it counts as a fish in the Middle Ages, which means you could eat it on fast days. And amazingly, it tastes exactly like meat. I mean, it's not just sort of meat-like a little bit, the way eel might be, because it's dark. Uh, uh, If you had told me it was venison or beef like um, short ribs. Uh, It's just like that. So um, the problem with lamprey from the medical point of view in the Middle Ages was really, really dangerous because it's cold and moist in the fourth degree. So the cold humor, the moist humor, and um, one of the kings of England uh, was alleged to have died after eating lampreys for dinner, even though his doctor told him to avoid lampreys. He was just too delicious to avoid. So, uh, you know, some doctors said, okay, go ahead and eat lamprey, but make sure you have a lot of black pepper sauce with it because pepper is hot and dry in the fourth degree. What I said before about balancing out um, uh, humoral properties. So um, they've got the same idea of eating healthy, uh, but then saying, oh, what the hell, I want this. Um, uh, or, you know, the games that people play uh, with themselves, like, oh, well, I just had a salad, so I'm, now I'm going to have a, uh, um, a, 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 you know, a, an elaborate ice cream dessert uh, by, because uh, I've, got, like, I've got a credit that I can yeah. spend. I'm, I'm eating sushi for lunch because, uh, for the health reasons. I eat raw fish and, uh, and lots of carbs, right? So when people think of sushi, they think of it extremely healthy and nothing can go wrong. Well, obviously, there's a lot of risk involved, not most American cities, but still. Exactly. And, 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 and so it's the image of health that's important. Yeah, that's really strange. Going, maybe leaving food for, for a moment. I know that's, that's, that's one of no, your no, other passions. No, it's this. This is about you. So we 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 are trying to to make this um, not just about you, but also the things you want to talk about and that you find really really fascinating. Uh, one thing, and, and this is something I learned a lot in you know, from you from your lectures, and um, that, that never appeared to me is the influence of monasticism, right? The the decision of some people to be very Christian, and what we just what we I just noticed this. So the the, the idea of of, of the fasting um, that's prescribed um, by Christians, um, or by Christian um, uh, Christian belief, it's it's something that's that people still do on an everyday life basis in, say, Ethiopia, but it hasn't been done anywhere else. Right? People just forgot about that. I don't actually know how that happened in the last couple hundred years. And but if you go to Ethiopia, it's very strict. So there's there's fish days, and there's there's non there's meat days, and then uh, it changes also during the day, I believe. So I've, I'm got really confused, but it's a big deal there. Um, but monasticism seems to be kind of um, this outgrowth of, of, of Christian belief that kind of 
and and you, you said that in your lectures, it created this attitude for learning, right? It, it, it gave us a lot of the books out of the from the Greeks. Um, it, it preserved a lot of knowledge. Um, how did how did that actually happen, and how does it fit into the history of Middle Ages? That seems to be not as much about knowledge generation, right? Well, why do you think it happened within the core part of Christianity, which seemed to be like? Um, I want to make that statement. Do um, I, I find the Old and New Testament still very fascinating? They don't. They hadn't at least initially encouraged people to learn as much. Well, why did it happen with monasticism? That's right. The Old Testament, the New Testament is uh, full of exalting the poor, uh, the um, non-elite, uh, and criticizing the educated as not understanding what uh, what God really is about. So um, uh, Christianity certainly has not so much an anti-intellectual bent at its beginning as an anti-Greek and Roman classical learning uh, tendency. How, the irony is that it is the uh, Christians and the monks in particular who preserve uh, the classical Latin and Greek texts, uh, including things like denunciations of Christianity. Uh, they were preserved by people who wanted to make sure uh, that they could refute these assertions. Um, mon monasticism didn't start in order to preserve learning. It started in order to create a situation more like that of the New Testament, uh, by people who were afraid that becoming a Christian or living like a Christian was, once the Roman Empire was no longer persecuting them, uh, uh, not enough of a dramatic life decision, not enough of a literal following of Christ's instructions to leave the world, to sell all that you have, to forget about uh, you know, your pension fund and, uh, uh, and to go out and uh, convert people and lead a life with no connections to the grosser material world. Um, the monks sought this either individually in the beginning as what we would call hermits, but the medieval monastery was a community. So it's a community of prayer, and it becomes successful for a number of reasons. One is that the two duties of monks become work as well as prayer. And this is an effective combination because uh, work includes agricultural labor. Uh, the monasteries had a very disciplined, uh, not only labor force, but uh, administrative sense. They, you know, being literate, could keep records for their lands. Um, and prayer, they were regarded as holy places. Those prayers of theirs had power. And so um, nobles and other elite who felt some anxiety about their fate in the next world. And well, they should, since often they got to where they were by killing people and stuff, uh, would make it up to God by giving to monks. So many of these monasteries become very wealthy. Uh, by the 7th, 8th century, the monk as copyist, as you know, preserver of texts, grows out of the notion of work. So work is not only agricultural labor, but the work of reading uh, and the work of copying, neither of which is all that easy uh, in a society in which few people are literate. Um, and copying, you know, when you've got to do it on a parchment, uh, you know, just, just think of uh, the physical difficulty of this as opposed to tapping away at your keyboard. 
Yeah. I I find it, it it's it's weird that we see the Middle Ages as a as a place that that didn't really have this Cambrian explosion of knowledge. And uh, it it probably had this with the monks or maybe it had it with the monks um that that took on this role of not just copying but reading these old texts I'm, I'm sure they they spent a lot of time trying to understand them as well and and re maybe reinterpreting them um through the lens of Christianity why do you think it took all the way down to the renaissance which probably started 13 14th 15th century um uh, to create this knowledge explosion why didn't it happen in the 7th century or like what was missing and and a lot of people ask the same question say why was the steam engine only um, um, invented so much later when a lot of the knowledge was around probably in the 8th 7th century as well yes so i think the first thing is that there is a Cam- cambrian explosion of knowledge it's just that it's not of scientific theory it's of more practical everyday things so certainly the scientific revolutions that you get in the 17th century with figures like galileo or newton um don't have a parallel in the middle ages but the middle ages for example developed wind and water power which the romans had not had um the middle ages uh developed um Uh, economic techniques like debt financing, bonds, um, insurance, uh, all, all things that the Romans either didn't have at all or uh, rather primitively. Um, the printing press comes at the end of the Middle Ages. Um, navigational uh, aids, the compass, um, uh, astronomical equipment. It's just that you can't point to a person like Copernicus uh, or, um, uh, you know, Boyle or Lavoisier, who is like the inventor of something. So uh, the increase in knowledge that allows the scientific revolution to take place uh, is... um, is a kind of an acceleration uh, made possible by things like the printing press, um, like, uh, you know, more rapid exchanges of knowledge, and the dethroning of um, Aristotelian uh, science by a more empirical, that is to say, experimental theory. Uh, so, in, in, but in everyday terms, and once again, we get back to what we were talking about at the beginning, where you have... People who are more independent, like peasants who are not slaves, uh, labor-saving devices suddenly become important. I don't completely buy into this, but you could say that the Romans were perfectly capable of developing uh, water mills and windmills. Uh, after all, you know they have aqueducts and stuff like that. Uh, but because they had so much slave labor, it wasn't worth it to them. Uh, similarly, you know, the Chinese developed gunpowder, but it was uh, Western Europe that weaponized it in the literal sense. So sometimes it's not the technological discovery, but the kind of society that thinks it can use things uh, to its benefit. I've heard this before, um, and I never really understood that. Um, 
the the idea that if you have slavery, you can't invent labor-saving devices. And for me, that never really made sense because yes, slaves probably reduced the cost of labor. That's for sure. But there's still a cost to it. Like slaves cost money, and and you have to you have to you have to sustain them, right? You have to you have to feed them, you have to house them. Even if it's really really in bad squalor-like conditions, there is a certain investment. And I always felt like yes, slaves maybe delay the the idea of having slavery. Um, delay the the introduction of machinery, but it shouldn't delay it by thousands of years, right? Maybe a hundred years, maybe two hundred. I would give it, but the the time frame seems to be we waited eight hundred years longer, and and then um, it took off. It always seems seems a little trick out of a hat that someone pulls, right? It sounds good in the moment, but when you think of it, it's just like anything else in economics. Yes, it, it it's probably cheaper, but so you, is, is anything that you do with a new technology that makes things cheaper, otherwise it wouldn't take off, right? Or any successful technology, so to speak. So the steam engine did things, um, but then we, we still invented electricity on top of it. That's right, that's right. I mean, there reaches a point at which... Um, uh, belief in technology and the training of people who are engineers or other uh, experts in technology becomes such that it, it develops an acceleration of its own and is unstoppable, in fact. Uh, that takeoff doesn't happen until, you know, arguably the 18th, 19th centuries. Before then, I suppose some of it is that the investment would just be too much. Just like, you know, why does the United States have such decrepit highways, railroads, um, uh, you know, uh, very poor transportation infrastructure. Uh, if if we built it up uh, to the level that, say, China was at, it would, you know, it would be a, a, a tremendous savings uh, in in all sorts of respects. But but uh, the country has not been willing to invest uh, in that. Um, for ideological reasons, uh, such as the belief that somehow the free market is, the private enterprise is supposed to do this, uh, to sit simply being too expensive. So um, just because you, the result would be good doesn't mean that you want to spend the money. Even now, in our uh, age, which is enchanted by technology, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I always feel like this particular desire to not fix our physical infrastructure is kind of under underwritten by this notion we are already, um, this Ray Kurzweil's um, um, thesis, we are kind of already transforming ourselves into cloud beings. So we feel like going to the cloud with our identity, what we do with COVID, right? It's cheaper to do all this in the cloud and not just fix the physical infrastructure because we don't need them anymore because we basically going to create computer children in 20 years from now. That's, that seems to be kind of a gut feeling that surprisingly a lot of Americans have. Yeah, but I don't get it because what, do you, what kind of life do you want? Like the Matrix, uh, where you're just a kind of uh, embalmed brain experiencing things in your imagination? I mean, people, people want to travel. The COVID epidemic has uh, hemmed people in. Uh, um, uh, yes, I'm, 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 I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm standing. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, I'm with you. I don't get. I just don't get it. Uh, uh, but, but I never understood uh, it. So like, yeah, there's the a lot. Yeah, how people accepted COVID restrictions so quickly without any any real debate and um, without also you know in California other states are better. We have been locked down from day one and. It seems to be that hasn't helped, or maybe it would have been it would have been worse without it. Who knows? Um, but there seems to be strong willingness to 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 just go cloud based. I don't know what it is, um, but there seems to be something intrinsic in people that they can't really consciously express. I feel, but they it's it's there. Um, 
but, but I want to go back to the Middle Ages since, I, since you're the expert on this. Um, what about entrepreneurship? Um, well, how did entrepreneurs fare in the Middle Ages? Were they um, able to, to, to finance their ventures? Do was it, were you like, literally was your head cut off if you went bankrupt, bankrupt and your venture didn't work out? Um, how was people's um, viewpoint on entrepreneurship in general? Oh, um, it's uh, certainly an age where risk is not merely losing your money, but, you know, the chance uh, of uh, <clears throat> a much greater disasters in uh, particularly international trade. Uh, the appetite for risk is tremendous and the willingness to undertake it. Um, so they also develop ways of trying to guard against or hedge against risk. So, you, for example, you have a venture to trade from Venice to Alexandria. Uh, Alexandria is, you know, Muslim territory. So on the one hand, this is routine. There are lots and lots of Venetians in Alexandria. In fact, so many that they have their own little kind of uh, uh, sub-city. Um, and they have warehouses, they have a church, they have, you know, uh, um, interpreters. Uh, but it's still a very risky venture, risky in terms of the uh, weather, the dangers of shipwreck, um, uh, the possibilities of, of suddenly deteriorating relations between Venice or the Christian world generally uh, and Alexandria. So, you know, you get other people to go into your business. The earliest kinds of commercial contracts that we have are things called commenda, where basically the, the simplest form is one person puts up the money and the other person makes the voyage and then they split it evenly. Uh, but, you know, you start to have um, many different arrangements as well as more than just two partners. People have shares of boats or they buy and sell their shares of things or they speculate on products like the price of spices um, uh, in, uh, you know, a kind of commodities uh, uh, bidding market. Uh, so uh, there's, a, there's a tremendous amount of... Um, uh, merchant enterprise, and it's carried at a risk, as I said before, that um, would put modern people to shame, except for people perhaps on the uh, you know high risk criminal side of enterprises. So, for example, of the Portuguese who accompanied da Gama to India in his first and second voyages at the end of the fifteenth beginning of the 16th century, voyages from Portugal to India, you know, which took like a year. Um, uh, only about a third of them survived. So that's what I mean by risk. Yeah. Like, this is, like, you would literally risk your life doing that enterprise, but say you open, I don't know, a bar, or you open um, a place of... of um, of um, entertainment, whatever that that would be. Um, say, I was about to say a cinema theater, but that <laughs> did obviously not happen. Say a theater, and it didn't it didn't work out the way you wanted. It goes bankrupt five years later, and you have a good amount of that. Would that be a problem for you personally, or you you, you would be okay? So you would do something else. Uh, it depends where you live, and depends how much the authorities enforce contracts. 
Um, it's a, I would say it's more similar than different. In other words, you'd lose money, you'd have the humiliation, your reputation would be adversely affected. Uh, but, you know, um, the worst time to be a debtor is, you know, the era of Dickens when people are really thrown into jail. And, you know, it's impossible for them to pay their debt because uh, they're in jail. Uh, yeah. so they don't tend to do that in the Middle Ages. Um, they have a lot of lawsuits. Uh, the archives of Europe are filled with litigation records uh, and broken agreements or allegations of bad faith in contracts. So uh, just like now, any any business that goes wrong uh, is going to have adverse financial as well as emotional and status consequences. But yeah. generally speaking, not fatal. So, you know, to get back to what you said before, nobody, nobody's having their head chopped off because their bar went, uh, went uh, out of business. Oh, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Uh, I, I, there is this theory, I don't know if you, had, um, if you read Ray Dalio's book, who says there's been these um, big cycles. I don't know if you've you looked into this from the economic side, these big cycles of, of, of money and the, uh, the um, devaluation of money and uh, the debt jubilees as we have it in the, in the Old Testament. It says every 50 years. And he describes these cycles where between 50 and 95 years and they happen pretty much everywhere. Uh, have you taken um, the, the time to, to trace them through the Middle Ages? Do they happen there too? Or you haven't looked into that? I haven't looked into it. It's, I'm not a, a, a strong economic historian. You do get towards the late, to the end of the Middle Ages, when you've got um, uh, things like banks lending money to kings. Uh, they they have some of the same kinds of uh, risks and rewards that you have now lending to public entities. So the great thing about states. Uh, you know, like the United States or uh, like uh, Germany, is that they're always collecting taxes. So, you know, they're always going to be able to pay you something. They're always going to yeah. have money coming in, unlike individuals, you know, who might suddenly die or uh, become disabled or they're, they're, they'll cease to be able to earn money uh, uh, from their present business. Uh, on the other hand, states then and now... Um, tend to spend more money than they're taking in, hence the need for financing. And the kinds of expenses that get out of hand are usually war uh, because war easily gets out of control as an expenditure. And the estimates that uh, the public authorities make about uh, uh, what wars are going to cost are uh, often uh, way too low. So, uh, yeah, there are examples, the banks in Siena, in uh, Italy, in the mid-14th century, went bankrupt. I mean, they you know, had to dissolve because the English king refused or was unable to pay his uh, uh, debts or to pay the interest on his debts. Uh, banks in Genoa uh, had to deal with the bankruptcy of the Spanish monarchy in the 16th century, even though Spain was the most powerful nation in Europe at the time. Um, you know, there were, their debts, again, due to war, were such that they simply couldn't, um, uh, couldn't pay back. But, you know, like now, people, people default on their credit card, and, uh, you know, a few months later, they're getting offers again. So other Genoese banks stepped into the breach, and, you know, it, you, you make a calculation of the risk, 
You try to spread the risk around uh, by attracting investors. Uh, you have safe investments uh, that don't pay all that much to offset the unsafe investments that have a higher interest rate. Uh, very similar to now. Yeah, yeah. Ray makes this this uh, this this point. He says you you either go bankrupt, you default on your obligations. Say the Argentina model, right? They keep doing this every twenty, thirty years. Uh, that seems to be a shorter cycle. And then there seems to be a longer cycle, especially if you are reserve currency or if you you're the Roman Empire, you're the only empire around. Then you start devaluing, and uh, you're the only currency, so people have to take it for what it's worth until that day comes where they say, okay, we can't do this anymore. Right? There is literally no value left, and um, a lot of people say this was the issue the Roman Empire fell apart, but it might be just, you know, it was one of the, the signs that you could see from the outside if you had that foresight at the time that you could see, okay, well, this this is not making enough money anymore compared to the size of the obligations and size of the empire. So this is probably not going to end well unless they develop a lot of technology, right? It makes them extremely efficient, but it didn't happen. We know that now. And a lot of people draw these 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 same parallels now with the US, right? This worldwide empire, we have bases everywhere in the world, we have the reserve currency, and we're kind of overspending, or at least we don't have enough productivity, let's put it this way. I don't know if we really overspend, um, but we don't we don't lend a lot, we just, we, we, we receive a lot of money from other people who give us this money, China especially, and other developing nations, weirdly enough. And he makes that point, we, we, the only point, we can either give up being a reserve currency, like, like the Romans, or we can devalue our way out of it, which is what he says was most likely going to happen. Um, I'm not sure I agree, um, because uh, devaluation would mean inflation. So, you know, if yes. the currency isn't worth as much, then people are going to demand more of it to buy the same uh, product. And that's exactly what we haven't seen. Uh, interest yes. rates are unbelievably low, uh, even though the United States has a, a, a very large debt. So uh, I would say that uh, it has more to do with, um, and this is true of the Roman Empire as well as the United States, um, internal cohesion, morale, um, uh, disunity, uh, than with actual debt. So the Romans had terrible inflation in the third century. Uh, they reformed the currency uh, uh, under Diocletian, which is where that class uh, um, uh, that I gave begins, uh, 284 to 306. Um, particularly Constantine, his successor, reforms the currency, restores the gold standard. Um, the gold coins are actually worth as much as they say they are. Uh, he finances it, by the way, to some extent by confiscating pagan temples, uh, treasure, uh, but also um, by taxation. And uh, more effective taxation of uh, the population. So um, you know you can have a good currency and still be and and a you know a internationally respected currency and still be falling apart for other reasons that have to do with internal um, rot, just to call it what it is. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. It's very difficult to to keep these things apart, and a lot of people. Um, default back to history and they feel history could maybe be the answer and there's a certain rhyme to it, right? But uh, all these empires, the Ottoman Empire had other problems and the Roman empires and they, they were all big for a while. Some of them came back and um, I, I learned this obviously through your uh, lectures, the 
the the existence of the the Roman Empire was I don't know 900 about a thousand years longer in in Constantinople than it was in Rome, and a lot of people don't know anything about it. I went to Istanbul a lot of times, and I I only think of it as an as an as a Muslim city, as an as a city that has a, certainly a more more relaxed, more modern approach, um, so to speak, to Islam. But I never thought this is actually it was the capital for the Roman Empire the longest time, right? Indeed, you have to think of Hagia Sophia without the minarets. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the building is is a Byzantine, gigantic um, church, uh, but every photograph of it, modern photograph, shows it with uh, the minarets that the Ottomans uh, constructed around it. Uh, yes, yes, that's right. I think the interesting thing about comparative empires is some of them are very impressive, like that of Napoleon, but they you know they only last uh, a very short time. Uh, others of them, like the Roman, like the Byzantine. Um, uh, you know, are incredibly durable. And so whatever their problems ultimately that dissolved them have to be understood in comparison to their cohesion, which allowed them uh, uh, to last for a very long time. Yeah. I want to ask you about Islam. And I, I, I read the, the, the text myself. I, I, I found it really, really different than, I, than the Quran. I found it really different than I thought um, it would be. I found it very beautiful in its poetic style, um, very interesting in the way how it references the Old Testament. But it kind of it doesn't, it doesn't force you to read the Old Testament. It kind of just makes like open references. And I, I, I found it fascinating that, you know, um, 600 years after Christianity uh, started and then many thousand years after Judaism, it makes so many references. Uh, re, I think it kind of reinvents um, the, uh, a very similar thesis um, around the Old Testament. And it has this explosive um, growth uh, kind of out of nowhere. And uh, um, it was for a long time seen as um, kind of a bit like Christian, kind of a bit like Jewish from, from what I understand. And then... It still had this, within, I think, 50 years, built this massive empire. Um, what do you think was the real explosive driver? And can that be repeated? Let's put it this way. Like, could you literally just come up with a cult and, so to speak, I'm not saying that Islam is a, is a cult, but a, a new branch of, an, of, an, of a monotheistic, Abrahamistic religion, and could just make it explode so quickly again. So, so what were the drivers for this, and how did that happen? Um. Uh, it is, as you say, uh, assimilates uh, Judaism and Christianity, and um, it's monotheistic and Abrahamic. So the uh, Christian world for a while regarded Islam as a kind of like an unnatural creature, like Christianity made by uh, a... Uh, uh, you know, a magician, uh, you know, a, a poor imitation, a pastiche. Uh, the advantage of Islam, and one reason for its popularity uh, over, you know, what's now uh, 13, 1400 years, is that it has a firm monotheism like Judaism, uh, but is not tribal, although it was created by the Arabs, it's not identified with an ethnicity very quickly. Um, you know, the largest Islamic nation today is Indonesia. And, you know, next comes, I think, uh, um, uh, Pakistan or Bangladesh. Uh, so these are non-Arab uh, Islamic uh, uh, nations. It uh, is... 
uh, and here I'm not, you know, I'm not taking any kind of sides, but it's more practical than Christianity. It's easier to live up to the precepts of Islam. Uh, It's not telling you to go and sell all that you have and give it away to the poor. It's not telling you to be chaste. Um, It's actually a religion of um, moderation, of upright conduct, of, um, uh, you know, frequent but not constant uh, prayer. And... um, uh, very much emphasizing, uh, you know, a kind of worldly uh, satisfaction, neither too sensuous nor too renunciatory. And I think that's one of the reasons for its success in the modern world. Uh, the reason for its uh, astonishing success in the 7th and 8th centuries, some of it has to do with, uh, um, you know, luck, Uh, the weakness of its early opponents, the Eastern Roman Empire and the Persian Empire, which had basically beaten each other to bits in uh, wars before the rise of Islam. Uh, Some of it comes in their, that is the Arabs' uh, willingness to absorb the culture of the people that they conquered. So uh, in addition to the monks being uh, transmitters of classical learning, uh, the Arabs are the transmitters of classical learning for many of them to the Middle Ages. So that um, the scholastic philosophers of the 13th century uh, based their uh, theological opinions on Aristotle and Aristotelian reasoning. And this was what dominated teaching of things like logic in the medieval universities. But they, their Latin versions of Aristotle were made from Arabic translations of the Greek uh, until the Renaissance, the um, the West had no access to the Greek originals. So um, why the Arabs are relatively tolerant as conquerors, why they're both effective conquerors and effective rulers, why they're able to absorb not only Greek and Roman learning, but Persian and Indian as well. Um, there's no sort of uh, explanation based on Uh, their previous history. It's their adaptation to circumstances. But that's also an explanation for their extraordinary success. Because by 720 AD, that is within 100 years after Muhammad's um, uh, death, they're controlling uh, territory from the Atlantic, from the Straits of Gibraltar uh, to the Indus River. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's astonishing. And it is... When you, when you read the Quran, you find so many familiar themes, and I, I fully agree with you there. there. It, it, it is certainly much more open than Judaism. Um, it, it's easier to follow. Uh, do maybe not, maybe that's more short term than long term thing. I think long term, it's, it's, it really goes and down into rituals and gives a lot of practical advice, but there's a lot of rituality to it. That can get really tough over the years. I feel maybe not. Maybe you just get used to it. I, 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 yeah. Well, it's like Ramadan. You know, if you if you're not Muslim, Ramadan looks like it's really tough. Uh, but um, people that I know who observe it say it's actually it's actually sort of wonderful. It's a it's a yeah. kind of uh, it's like being an athlete. And then when you are able to eat. Uh, at sundown, it's just so wonderful and it's so festive, and yeah. you know you always celebrate it uh, with other people. And uh, you know that COVID has deprived a lot of people of uh, uh, the uh, 
you know, Ramadan is now suddenly this, this, this isolating and endless experience. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's part of it is a problem of people who are not themselves uh, raised in or loyal to some kind of traditional religion. And as we were talking about before, things like health regimes or dieting or fasting without a religion are still popular. Uh, people are looking for something, whether it's compulsive neatness or feng shui or... Um, uh, uh, you know, some kind of uh, new age uh, cult uh, to achieve some of these same ends. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, besides the religious instinct, there seems to be something inside of us that, that we keep exploring these fields, right? It, it's just, we don't know where it comes from, but it's like at everyone's heart emotionally or conscious in a conscious way. They're just curious, and I know this is a tough question, do you feel that you, you can recreate the success of spreading a religion so quickly in today's times? Well, if you would do it, what would you do? Yeah, I don't know. It wouldn't be an Abrahamic religion. I think the big three uh, and their variations have gone about as far as you're going to go. You might have a religion that claimed to be based on the Bible. Uh, but um, so, I mean, already there are certain kinds of forms of what is called Christianity, but that I don't buy into as, you know, so uh, the gospel of wealth, you know, the gospel of success, uh, uh, various kinds of churches that basically say, forget about the poor, forget about uh, sacrifice, uh, live it up because that's what God wants. So, um, uh, you know, I would have said that communism uh, at its height was a, uh, a form of religion in that it claimed to be uh, universally applicable. It claimed to be a kind of, it claimed to be science, but um, uh, it was like religion in that it um, it had heresies, it repressed heresies, uh, it, you know, jailed or executed critics, it had a cult of personality, it had, you know, figures like Stalin or Mao who were uh, thought to be, I mean, they didn't use the term divinely inspired, but uh, they might as well have. So, um, uh, yeah, they're all over the place and uh, there's no reason to think that uh, something else couldn't come up. Uh, and of course, given modern media and social networking, it, it would spread uh, even more rapidly than communism, let alone uh, uh, than one of the Abrahamic religions did. Yeah, my gut feeling is, and uh, you know, people say this about when we go through a crisis, we experience a higher religiousness. But my gut feeling is that there's a real sense of a need for, for what religion is a tool for us, right? I, I consider it as a survival tool. I consider it as a as a way to look into the future optimistic and to to balance things out between the rich or poor or lots of other things that are going on in our life. And we, when I look around in Silicon Valley, when I look around in California, the, the actual religiousness, you might say, okay, well, we, we just changed it to a different, we give it a different name. Maybe it's it's the idea... The, um, um, it's a, it's a much more worldly religion, but I think these deep religions, they, if, if they make their way into people's minds, um, give you incredible survival edge. And I think we've lost this. Maybe we didn't need it, right? Because we had a lot of survival. We, don't, we didn't have to worry about most survival issues because of technology. But the question is, are our minds suffering from this? And I feel like this, this, this reduction of 
old school um, religious um, experience is something that that a lot of people feel they're missing out on these days. And maybe that's just because of the crisis. I think this is more of a long-term trend. So I think there's a revival, and I'm always curious, will it be the same or will it be like a, f- a fashionable new version of Christianity, which which would be my money. My, I would bet my money on this if someone comes up with this, like a like a... Elon Musk comes up with the, with the religion he sponsors, right? He has the marketing platform for it. And uh, it's just give, give us a little bit more of this, this belief into the future, which would probably be a good thing, right? I mean, people being more optimistic about the future is probably a good thing in 2020 and 2021. Uh, well, I think I agree that if the, the, the most likely source of this is going to be somebody with a personality and resources like Elon Musk, I don't agree that it's going to be good. I'm almost sure it's going to be terrible uh, uh, if okay. it comes up. And and my belief, my personal belief, you know, I'm not speaking now as a, a credentialed uh, expert. My personal belief is that we already have it um, and that it's in the form of various forms of what purports to be evangelical Christianity. But this yeah. is something that has, in fact, is a version of an Abrahamic religion uh, that has um, a tremendous following um, and that is uh, a form of certainty. Uh, it's both a form of getting along in the world and of fixing your eyes on the next world. Um, and it works for many people. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, again, my personal belief is that it's not been completely uh, productive of sweetness and light and human understanding. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot of contenders for the spot, huh? right, in the, in, the, in the top five. Um, I'm, I'm watching this closely because I really feel it's a bit of a business. Like in the 70s, there were cults around, like they came mostly out of Korea and Eastern Asia, and they suddenly spread like wildfire. And the 70s were tough for people individually because of high inflation, low growth. Um, they were kind of this, the growth was slowing tremendously from the 50s and 60s. And uh, they they really filled that void for people to to be home, to be to feel comfortable. And I think we are, we're in the exact same spot right now. And I think it's a bit like a business. I always feel like religion is a bit like a business. I don't consider this as a bad thing. I feel they have to market themselves and they have to sell something that makes people better. And then they're worth their time because you give them attention. And uh, um, something new is brewing, I feel. Um, for a second, I would love to go back to, to the Middle Ages and, and talk about the Vikings. Um, those seem to play a very non-religious, strong influence on Europe, right? They 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 come in kind of as a as a kind of as a tribe that nobody really had contact with, and then they 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 kind of are released this pressure for everyone else to well to to improve themselves, right? To to put up their defenses, to actually build something, to so they can defend against the Vikings, and they are not just the the the, the sacrificial lamb. The, uh, yeah, the Vikings certainly are one of those groups that comes in as a big surprise. Uh, they, their legacy is really um, what I'd say connectivity. So the Bi- Vikings, for example, are simultaneously um, settling Iceland, Greenland, even touching on uh, uh, the New World, um, and going east uh, to uh, uh, as far down as the Black Sea, the Volga, uh, and into Europe, uh, taking over northwestern France, Normandy, um, and even uh, uh, making expeditions into the Mediterranean. So 
they they are responsible, for example, to for uh, some of the founding of uh, uh, Russia as a state. Um, uh, you know, the founders of the Principality of Kiev. Uh, of making connections with the Islamic world and Scandinavia so that, for example, uh, more coins from the era of the caliphate have been found in Scandinavia than anywhere else because they were part of Viking hordes. And these coins they got from trading. So that's another thing that is their legacy. They're traders as well as raiders. If they can plunder, they'll do that. And if they can't plunder, you know, if they find an enemy who is too well entrenched, uh, they'll see if they can't uh, 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 um, make some sort of economic, mutually beneficial deal with them. So their, their, their major role seems to be that of like a catalyst, a catalyst for um, making something in which not only does Northern Europe Scandinavia become uh, part of Europe generally, but it brings together worlds that previously had been separate. Yeah, it's. Do you feel like, and, and looking back, the Vikings especially, especially, but in, in general through the through the ages, through the Middle Ages, do you feel war has been? A, it's a short term, a catastrophe for people. Um, and you, 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 it's a lot of people pay in the ultimate price. But is it a long-term, um, for, from your point of view, a long-term improvement? Because the better system, the better group of people, the more just people, so to speak, these are all assumptions, they usually, over the long term, get the upper hand. I guess I'm not uh, confident of that. I do think war is creative in the sense that uh, I think it was the Greek philosopher Heraclitus who said, war is the mother of all things. So, yeah. you know, a lot of technology, things like radar, come out of <clears throat> uh, this frozen foods, you know, come out of the Second World War, uh, to say nothing of atomic energy. Uh, but um, I don't think that the people who win wars are necessarily um, either better ethically or even in a Darwinian sense. Uh, I think that wars are won and lost. Uh, I think that wars are sometimes won by people who I wish had not won, or who all of us might have wished uh, had not won. Of course. Yeah. No, of course, this is obviously um, only, only valid in the long term. And uh, I think Eric Weinstein said that originally, that, you know, in, in, or maybe he, he just quoted someone that, you know, we learn best at the margins and, and war is kind of, as you said, it's, it's this, it pushes everyone um, to the limits, uh, to the margin. And this is where it is. This huge boost in learning happens. And uh, um, it, it's obviously um, an extremely dangerous undertaking and it, um, a lot of people um, die from it. But it seems to it seems to push people forward, and kind of people make the same um, the same comparison now with COVID, right? They say this is such an existential crisis that we need to change basically everything, and uh, this this is a similar kind of um, you know at the margins energy that we need to produce, and you know a lot of people say we need to redesign the world because um, not as COVID out there. There's been other pandemics, and the people and it was redesigned, right? The world was slightly redesigned. Right. I mean, the, the, it is true that you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. But if you're, you know, the egg, uh, just like if you're one of the 400,000 plus people who died, um, the ultimate yeah. working out of this is not a consolation. Yeah. Yeah. And the wrong side of entropy. 
<laughs> that's what I that's what I learned about entropy. Well, on this summer note, thanks for doing this, Paul. That that was fantastic. Thanks for helping me out with my questions. Um, I feel much wiser already. Uh, well, thank you for asking such intriguing uh, questions, Torsten, and uh, for allowing me to uh, uh, arrange uh, beyond uh, that uh, early medieval history course. Well, absolutely. We'd love to have you back uh, if your time allows. Thanks for taking the time. Be a pleasure. Thanks again, Torsten. Bye-bye. Paul, talk soon. Bye-bye.